Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. Go to strengthguild.com, S-T-R-E-N-G-T-H-G-U-I-L-D.com. Scroll down to the Iron Radio Collections, and we've got new shirts and new banners for you to support the show. Everything from just a regular banner, regular shirt, to ones with sayings on them, like Lonnie's Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree shirt. And some news for you, we're going to have some contests for people who own these shirts and things. So if you support the show, we'll let you more on that later. So if you get in on these early, you can be one of the first people to win some prizes. So, thank you very much. Go check out the site, strengthguild.com. Scroll down to Iron Radio Collections and support the show. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and nutrition professor of about 20 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Uh, this is Phil Stevens, the strength coach. I run Strength Guild. I do Highland Games powerlifting and just whatever else people can talk me into. <laughs> Hey, this is Dr. Mike T. Nelson, uh, creator of the Flexicide Cert, professor at the Berg Institute, and currently in South Dakota. Hi, good morning. I'm Lisa Lewis. I'm a licensed psychologist, and my work focuses on building a strong mind and a strong body for people in therapy, but also people who are athletes, high achievers, um, who just want a little bit of coaching and consultation to improve. Awesome. We um yay. totally yay. We for ten years, um, doctor, we have tried to put more psych into the show. Um and we just haven't had many opportunities to do that that was, you know, um specific enough to be of interest thematically, right, with uh, uh-huh. a, a bunch of lifters. So your presence is very appreciated. Ah, oh, well I'm glad to speak to this audience because this is um I love to lift weights also just in my personal life and so I have found that as my professional life has unfolded, I more and more and more get to be with my people and and talk to this audience. So thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Uh, Everyone, I'm going to share two little news bits. I know I promised three, I think, last time, but we want to get to Dr. Lewis's origin story. So I just – I want to – make good on my promise last week. There are – I have two science tidbits here. Uh, the first one, Mike and I were talking about uh, off microphone last week a little bit, but there's a new uh, pre-workout coming down the pike, uh, and I I think maybe we can just ask – Mike and I know some of these guys. I think, Phil, you probably do too, <laughs> and we might just like hit them up for some free cases. If you remember, Mike, last time we like when we oh, toured, yeah. toured the factory and stuff, we got all that free stuff. Um, anyway. Strength and Muscle Sport News. It's Bang. Bang Energy Maker launches a line of pre-workouts. This is from Food Business News by Rebecca Schouten. It says, VPX Sports Maker of Bang Energy Drinks is launching New Fusion. So N-O-O-F-U-Z-I-O-N. So everything has to be misspelled so it can be trademarked these days, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, New Fusion, a line of ready-to-drink pre-workout beverages carbonated and it says they are designed to promote muscle growth energy focus recovery and performance that's a tall order (laughs) Mm. all of that okay Mm -hmm. everything right 
Uh, anyway, no sugar, 16-ounce cans. They have some essential amino acids. They have uh, 2.5 grams of betaine. Uh, and then on the sort of, I guess, nootropic side, you could say, caffeine and uh, citicoline, which, mm. Mike, you probably know more about this than I do, but I think it – isn't it a PC, a phosphatidylcholine booster? Um, yeah, it's a choline booster. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and it's – there's actually – pretty darn good data on it like one of the main researchers they can look up is a guy named dr renshaw but yeah it's actually some pretty good data i actually remember something vaguely about wasn't this a stroke medicine or something or uh i'm sure yeah, it's they've used it in been a lot studied. of pathologies is where it was primarily studied um alpha gpc is kind of more like the sports nutrition uh cousin just from chemi neutra but mm-hmm. that version's been a little bit more expensive it's a little bit uh different um, but yeah, even citicoline is the the patented form is it's not cheap because they still have the patent on it, but it's got like pretty good data for you know pre workout type stuff because beyond caffeine, a lot of the data for those is like yeah mm, yeah exactly. <laughs> There's always caffeine there. How suspicious, you know, because yeah. it's always the <laughs> the workhorse of the formula, yep. mm-hmm. especially for stuff that's still legal. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, I mean, I I did a quick scan this morning because it's hard for me to keep up with all this stuff. But I'm I'm interested as to how it became a supplement, how uh, Jack Owalk got it in here, selling it as a dietary supplement. I mean, I mean instead of a med, instead of a, a pharmaceutical. So, um, yeah, hmm. I think uh, CDP and Cognizant was originally got grass approval. I could be wrong on that, like a long time ago. Again, I'd have to double check to be sure, but. It's been it's one of those things that's been around for quite a while. It's not really much of a gray <clears throat> gray area, but I think possibly because of price, a lot of people didn't use it either. Okay, got you. Well, there it is. Something um, potentially new. These names are just so funny with with pre workouts. You know, it's always like you know toxic mushroom cloud and red line this and that and, <laughs> and it, these are almost funny purple kittles radical skedaddle rainbow unicorn. It's like okay if that's I mean, Jack Owalk is a master marketer, so he knows stuff I don't. So, okay. <laughs> so, New Fusion coming down the pike. And then just quickly, here's another one. Um, this is from the Institute of Food Technologists. Uh, Sucralose-carbohydrate combo may affect insulin sensitivity. And we've talked about this over the years, about the use of either, you know, not well, some kind of non-nutritive sweetener. If it doesn't have any calories, it sort of messes between your taste buds and some of the, you know, like your hypothalamus and different sensory centers around the body. It ends up kind of fooling your body. Uh, and then you get like this carbohydrate dysregulation, right? Because you, you have this anticipatory uh, response that starts to kick in almost as soon as you put something in your mouth. And then it's kind of a lie, right, because it's sweet, but your blood sugar doesn't change, and then your body sort of homeostatic mechanisms start to mess with the intention. But it says, a study found that people who drank beverages that contained the low-calorie sweetener sucralose did experience metabolic problems and issues with neural responses, but only when the beverage was formulated with both sucralose and maltodextrin, so a starch. Mm. Uh, It says, scientists debate how low-calorie sweeteners in foods and beverages can affect human metabolism. You know, some say they're helpful. Some say they just, again, they they sort of, you can't fool Mother Nature, essentially. This study was published in Cell Metabolism, and here's a quote for you. It says, consumption of sucralose combined with carbohydrates impairs insulin sensitivity, according to researchers from Yale. 
uh, in this study. The metabolic impairment is associated with decreases in neural responses to sugar. So again, this feels thematic with what I've been hearing over the years. Normally what I've heard is warnings that are about the older non-nutritive sweeteners, you know, things like, um, mm-hmm. you know, aspartame and, and stuff like that. But so this is, makes me a little sad because I do put a half a pack of Splenda in my coffee sometimes. Um, it says, interestingly, sweetener only or sucrose only, they didn't see any impairments. Um, but according to Dana Small, professor of psychiatry and psychology at Yale, quote, when the drink was consumed with just the low-calorie sweetener, no changes were observed. However, when the same amount of low-calorie sweetener was consumed with carbohydrate added to the drink, that sugar metabolism uh, in, the, in the brain in response to it uh, became impaired. So... I guess I, I, I'm not going to make recommendations based on a single paper, of course, but, you know, it makes you wonder maybe what I do with, this, with the sucralose I'll get away with because it's in coffee and it's the only thing in my coffee. I don't put a bunch of other junk in my coffee. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to mix it with a bunch of, you know, like use maybe Splenda to make, uh, I don't know, brownies or cookies or something like that, that it might mess, the, it mess with your insulin response. Anyway. So that's all I've got, uh, Mike, if you want to take the handlebars, and uh, yeah. I will listen intently. Yeah. Uh, yeah, thank you for being on the show, Dr. Lewis. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Um, how did you basically get into what you're, what you're doing now? Tell us your, your origin story. It was a long and windy road, but now that I'm here, I don't, I don't really see how I could have thought I would end up anywhere else, but... To boil it down as briefly as I can, I am a therapist by trade. So in 2003, I earned a a master's degree in clinical counseling psychology, and I started my career working with people who were mentally ill, so people who were sick, Um, inpatient psychiatry, inpatient substance abuse. Um, And I always had my eye on sports psychology. When I was in college, I was an athlete. And one of my professors said to me, have you ever heard of sports psychology? And I just remember thinking like, that's like cookie dough ice cream. Like how could two amazing things be (laughs) one thing? Um, And and so that really got me, piqued my interest in the field. And so as I was working and um, kind of getting going in my career, I, um, in 2006, I started um, to earn my doctoral degree in counseling and sports psychology at Boston University. And I continued to work full time as a substance abuse counselor for the first three years of my doctoral work. Um, So I, I specialized in addiction counseling at that time. And so all those years I was practicing communicating with all kinds of people. If you're familiar with addiction, it doesn't care what color you are, what your ethnic background is, what socioeconomic status you come from. It, it, it was really a great opportunity to work with everybody. And as I was going through my doctoral work, I, of course, I loved sports and athletes, but I became more and more and more interested in exercise psychology because my jam is really motivation and what makes people tick. And so I started to steer more and more towards exercise motivation and uh, motivation science, motivation psychology. I ended my doctoral work spending about four or five years working in college mental health, which is another great way to get to work with everybody, you know, people who are very, very mentally healthy and thriving and just need a little bit of coaching. 
um, and then people who are really struggling and have mental illness. So I think the, the biggest strength that I bring from my experience is that I've worked, I've gotten to work all along the spectrum. Um, and I have this kind of broad array of tools for counseling, which is basically having a conversation with somebody that's focused on them and what they want and the ways in which they want to improve. My dissertation was on um, physical activity motivation, what helps people to engage in regular habits of exercise. And um, as I wrapped that up, I was still working in college mental health, but I became more and more interested in the fitness industry because I've married a strength and conditioning coach who does a lot of continuing education and who does a lot of writing um, for different magazines and so on and so forth. So his name is Tony Genelcore and over the years of um, us just being together, more and more he would say that he was talking to a personal trainer or a strength coach at a workshop or even talking to a client and, and they'd be asking him some kind of question and he would say, well, that's really a question for my wife, not for me. Um, and so over time, he started asking me to write articles for his blog. Um, and then we got this idea to do workshops together, uh, which we now call Strong Body, Strong Mind. And so it's really the integration of communication skills um, and psychological skills into working as a coach. Um, or just being a fitness enthusiast and, and using psych skills to help you get big and strong or pursue whatever your athletic goals are. So to me, these things go hand in hand. But what's been kind of surprising but also so fabulous is how I've been welcomed with opened arms into the fitness industry. Um, I think like you said at the beginning of our time together, you'd like to have more psych but haven't really had the opportunity for somebody who sort of addresses this niche so it, it mm -hmm. to me it's kind of a niche like cookie dough ice cream like it feels exactly where i belong and so needed and so um helpful um and i myself am an aspiring meathead so i love to talk about all things strength training and um you know just pursuing athleticism um and so i moved away from um working in mental health uh, counseling centers in college mental health, and I became an LLC a handful of years ago. So now I have this kind of awesome um, decathlon of a private practice where I have some patients I see who are presenting with mental health problems like anxiety or depression or eating disorders, and we do traditional psychotherapy. I work with athletes and a bunch of executives who tend to be men uh, who work in the city and um, who are looking for this kind of executive coaching slash addiction counseling kind of a relationship. And then I work with a bunch of fitness professionals. I do in-services and workshops for a staff. I have one-on-one -on -one consultation clients who are either nutrition coaches, strength coaches, or both. Um, and then I get invited to do cool stuff like this. Uh, so it's a nice mix of things. Yeah, that's very awesome. How did you get into the lifting sites? You said you've been lifting for many years. Yeah, so uh, my father was always into bodybuilding. He had this, I, I really hope that one day it becomes mine. He has this Soloflex from like 1982. Nice. And um, it sat in the corner of the bedroom. This is back before like it was okay to, to have a gym in your bedroom. <laughs> and he read Muscle and Fitness Magazine, he read Flex Magazine, 
he designed his own workouts. And so probably from the time I was in kindergarten or first grade, you know, he'd pick me up from school, we'd come home, he would do his lifting, and I would be kind of playing, but kind of trying to get in on the action. And so when people ask me when I started strength training, I, I mean, technically kindergarten, <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, I think that from a very early age, my dad was like, okay, you can do this. And then I, you know, I would do whatever he was letting me do. And then he'd say, oh, you're really strong. You know, so it was really baked right in to feel comfortable in that environment, to feel confident in that environment, to enjoy it because I kind of got to get on my dad's thing that he was doing. Um, so it was always in my orbit. It was always something I was interested in. And then of course, when I started to specialize in sports, I was playing a bunch of sports in, in, um, school around 16, 17 years old, you know, once you start really getting serious, if you're an, a high school athlete, that's when I started um, lifting to support sport performance. Um, and then my freshman year in college, I played a sport in the fall. And after the fall semester, that was the first time I didn't have practice to go to after school. And so that is when I really got into you know, I started reading like muscle and fitness hers and I, you know, I started trying to have a training regimen. And um, so that level of just me and my own trying to be a meathead was like 19. Very cool. Mm -hmm. And obviously you've continued that on for past 19 for many years post. Yeah. So I always was kind of into it. And then, of course, when I was 29, um, you know, I started dating a strength coach who started to kind of make, you know, he was trying to make helpful suggestions about the way in which I was <laughs> lifting weights, trying to bodybuild. And I was like, man, who's this guy Tony Genelcore think he is? I've been <laughs> reading Muscle and Fitness Hers for, you know, all these years. Like, why is he trying to, you know, why is he trying to criticize what I do? Um, <laughs> uh, and so after he had me read some things and kind of open my mind up, I, I mean, I think that really just catapulted how strong I could get and you know, just helped me to train a lot smarter and just love it a lot more. Very cool. Mm -hmm. And I have to ask, do you guys normally train together? Does he do your programming or do you kind of both uh, kind of do your own thing or does it just depend on, I know you've got a crazy schedule and he's got the gym and you got a little one and everything else mm -hmm. going on. Too. Yeah, it's really changed over the years. We used to never train together and he would basically be like my distance coach and, and write my programs, which is is good if you want to keep your marriage healthy i think <laughs> and then I, I you know a handful of years ago i had this injury that was just getting worse and worse and nagging me and i saw this pt and that pt and a handful of different people finally i made it to an orthopedic doctor who didn't know me and didn't know who my husband was or my world was and at the end of the second appointment we were talking about my deadlift form and he said do you know anybody, like a, a trainer or anybody, who could take a look at your form? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, uh, yeah, I know a guy. <laughs> and so that kind of spawned us training together once a week, just so I could get some eyes on. Um, and actually, it, we really enjoyed it. It's kind of parallel play. We, we almost never go through the same workout at the same time. We're sort of doing our thing with our own earbuds in. but. I'll ask him for some eyes on or he'll ask me for some eyes on and um, it's actually kind of fabulous. In the pandemic, it's become much, you know, we're together all the time um, and, and plus a toddler. So 
there's been a lot more training together in the last four months. And then I, I don't know if you know, but my husband recently ruptured his Achilles um, uh. and still was, you know, has been trying to train in a cast and, you know, needs my help a little bit more with just, you know, getting weights on and off and, and moving things around. So right now we're probably training more together than we're definitely training more together than ever before. Yeah, I think I saw a video he was having you when he had the cast on hold him down from doing some like Nordic leg curls or something <laughs> like that. So yeah. I was like, oh, this is this is what's going on with training now. You you help Tony would do whatever he wants to do. <laughs> <laughs> we have to give him a bad time because he's not here to defend himself. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's actually at work today. He's been able to go in and see one client at a time. Um, so he's got a, he's actually has a full day today. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, I just had another general question before we drift too far into the topic of the day, and we'll we'll do a break after this. Mm-hmm. What do you what do you think is missing most often for people from the psych perspective? Like for lifters, you see, and people you work with. If you had to narrow it down to like one or two things, and then we'll get into the topic of the day, which is on resiliency. Mm-hmm. What are kind of themes you see come up pretty often? I see the ends of the spectrum come up most often. So black and white, meaning I think the, there's one end of the spectrum that is like, just do it, no pain, no gain, ignore your emotional reactions to things, your sensory experience, what's happening with your the pain information that you're getting, and just, you don't need motivation, you, you know, forget all that psychology mumbo jumbo and just bust your ass so i think that's one end of the spectrum and then the other end is like mindset mindset is this very popular word right now like mindset is everything and you need to find out your why and self-care 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 and be gentle with yourself and um so these two extremes and as as you know, if you coach people or if you just are into this, there's so many shades of gray. There's so much granularity. And just the same way you assess somebody and you design a program for them, psychological skills are the same. So some people, you know, need to, they like that pushing a little bit harder and have a higher threshold for pain and use exercise or strength training to diffuse stress in their life. Whereas other people, they need a gentler touch. You know, they need less volume in their training program. And so they they need less emotional intensity in their training, or they need to pay more attention to where their stress level is at, because it could actually be draining for them. So I think a lot of the nuance gets lost um, in fitness. And that people tend to think they have to go one extreme or the other. Yeah, I I even just think about different approaches I use with online clients. You know, they may sort of present, quote unquote, with the same thing, but yes. the language of how I would talk to them is probably going to be completely different of, you know, someone who I know has been lifting for 20 years versus someone who is just trying to get the habit of exercise and maybe they miss a bunch of sessions or, you know, something like that. It's right. how I talk to them is going to be completely different, even though looking at it on paper, you're like, well, but it's the same sort of 
thing that happened, but you're not going to interact with everybody the same way. Yeah. And I, I love what the way, where you went with that, because I think it really underscores that as a coach, your effectiveness has everything to do with that relationship, how you attend to that specific relationship. So yes, maybe they're answering all the same things on your initial intake, or it looks the same on paper, but you're describing learning about each individual, how to communicate with them, what they really mean when they're saying something, and how much they like to be pushed or held or some combination of those things. And so I think that people like you and all kinds of nutrition coaches or strength coaches are doing counseling. You are doing psychological work all the time. And I would argue once you have your baseline of education around physiology, kinesiology, hypertrophy, all that, your psych skills are actually just as important, if not even more important. Yeah, I I remember the very first uh, in-person client I had years ago, and I'm like, oh, nutrition, this should this can't be that hard. I had taken a bunch of classes and stuff. You know, and everybody's laughing at this point because they know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, he didn't do anything I told him to do. And I'm like, what? <laughs> why is he paying me? Like, what is going mm-hmm. on? And then I get the second client and the third client, like right in a row. And like the same thing. <laughs> I'm like, I tell him not to eat Oreos. He's eating more Oreos. What? <laughs> what is going on? What the hell? Yeah. And then I, I went, uh-oh. I shouldn't have gone into exercise physiology. I should have got into psychology. Like, what am I doing? (laughs) You know, guys, uh, Lisa, if I can ask, so what are your thoughts then about the explosion of life coaches uh, that seem to be able to, you know, their scope of practice is what I do. It's what you do. It's what Mike does. It's what Phil does. Um, Are they a good screening, like, you know, uh, level of professional. I don't want to sound elitist here, right? But like Mike's saying, right. like you have to be careful with some of this stuff. Well, I was thinking about eating disordered clients. Like the way I approach someone with that was a referral from a physician for anorexia nervosa, I'm not going to harp on diet logging in the same way, right? Mm-hmm. That I would some other people. So how do you how do you look at people who are life coaches because you know it's an exploding sort of uh, profession yes, it is. Uh, so what do you what are your thoughts on that well my first reaction to it is a positive one because I think it there are more and more of them because people are interested in that and to me it is a destigmatized way for somebody to seek out support mm-hmm. from somebody who is looking out for wellness and self-evolution so I, I even notice in my own practice, people will contact me and want performance consultation or be looking for quote unquote executive coaching when to me, I'm a therapist, uh-huh. <laughs> but if they, but they like to call it that because it's destigmatized. So I think that life coaching is popular because people really love and benefit from having a conversation that is focused on them and how they feel and what their, their goals are. Mm-hmm. Um, what is tricky about it is, like you're saying, there. You know, what is the educational requirements to use that? Is it being regulated by a license somewhere in a state? Um, no, it's much more the wild west at this moment. And I know there are certifications that you can get, but I don't think it's a protected term. I think you can call yourself a life coach, um, no matter what. I believe. 
So, I, you know, I think that people have to be savvy consumers, just like if you're looking for, I, I'm pretty sure you can say nutritionist or nutrition coach without specific certifications as well. Depends um, on the state. Yeah, yeah in Ohio, you, yeah. you sure can't. <laughs> ah, okay. So, you know, I think... I think it speaks to people's desire to seek out helping relationships to improve, but also that it's information about things that make people where the stigma still lies, I guess, or, you know, what's out there in the society that's like okay to do versus not okay to do. I mean, I Mm -hmm. have clients who refer to me as their coach and I think it's because it makes them feel more comfortable. Um, mm-hmm. and I don't care what they call me, uh, but that's what I, I think it is a reflection of. And, um, I think it will continue. I think that there'll continue to be certifications or maybe even degrees that you can get in, in life coaching or in wellness right. coaching. I actually have one consultation client right now who is a strength coach and who has a lot of background um, in nutrition counseling. And she actually works for a big company right now and and um, provides wellness coaching for people who have a lot of chronic illness and have been identified by their managed care company of, of being at high risk. So she's, um, she's pretty much doing a lot of counseling when you know she talks to me for support around the work that she's doing. I think she's doing really hard, really psychologically minded work, um, but that's not what her education is all about, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that way, that's another reason that I like to work in this industry is because of people like you and people like her who are doing a lot of psychological work, but you don't have the educational background and you don't have the support. Like there's no clinical supervision the way that there is um, in psychology. So I, I also am curious about people who are life coaches, like what kind of support do they have? What kind of continuing education are they getting? Is there a check on them the same way there is for, I don't know what it's like for your licenses, but for me, I hire a, a supervisor and I talk to her every couple of weeks about what's going on with me and my patients. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just a way to make sure I've got my eye on my ethics and my boundaries and my treatment, you know, to make sure the quality is high. So I don't think that that exists in life coaching. Yeah. I, I think we, we've had, well, we've had whole episodes on referrals, right? And th- mm. So that would be, I think, the linchpin because, you know, you could do real damage. The whole issue with licensure, at least in dietetics, is protect the public, you know? Right. And so if you have someone who doesn't have any training and they're, you know, they they do end up working with somebody who's eating disordered, they can do some real damage, you know, or allergies or intolerances or Mike, to your point about mindset, you can't yeah. just roll out templates. That seems to be the thing in fitness and nutrition. Yeah. Um, What's the protocol? Exactly. Like, put put me on a low-carb diet, bro, yeah. instead of realizing, like, if you go to a physician, she's going to, you know, she's going to do an assessment. You have to get some baseline. You have to figure yeah. out who you're talking to. I, I always thought sort of the, the referral would be the linchpin in a way, but... Yeah. Not not doing psych because I can tell you even among professionals I know a lot of dietitians they do stuff where I'm like you really need to make a referral to a, a psychologist or a psychiatrist yeah. like you are drifting way into some pretty heavy you know psychological stuff here like with the eating yeah. disorders and stuff like that you know what I mean and I don't think and I probably get some crap for this from certain diet other dietitians but they'd, they'd be like well you know we're qualified to do this I'd be like mm, careful <laughs> Any, anyway. 
And that's why one thing I love is treatment team approach. I really, really think it's it benefits everybody. It benefits the client because they get another set of eyes coming at it from another orientation who can provide some expertise. Yeah. And then you also get that support. So that dietitian who's like in the psychological waters, maybe she thinks this is still, you know, in my realm, but if she could be working alongside of a psychologist or even just get a consultation, you know, have their client go see a psychologist once or twice. Mm-hmm. It just really increases the integrity of the work. It strengthens any recommendations that are being made. It helps the client see like even this person in from this different orientation is validating what my dietitian is saying or or is encouraging the work that I'm doing. So everybody wins when you have good referrals and you work you know, you work kind of laterally with other kinds of professionals. Before I get in trouble, there are a lot of uh, team approach type things. Like I worked at, on teams at universities, like eating disorder mm. teams, and mm. it is in place. I mean, I, I think yes. a lot of that stuff is in place, of course. Yes. But I think about like Phil, when you talk about like uh, people will say, I want you to do a lot of soft tissue work or almost like massage therapy stuff. You're like, mm-hmm. I don't do that <laughs> and yet so many strength coaches take it upon themselves to get pretty deep into that right so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A- anyway yeah it's a the scope of practicing I, I it can become a negative like mine mine back and forth pulling on a rope you know like whose scope who gets to do this because let's face it it's expensive to roll out a team of half a dozen professionals but uh, you know, totally. To, yeah. And so. that's the benefit, I think, of working at an institution. Like if you're working at a university or you're working in a hospital setting where you're not going to lose your client, your business, and you're, and it's not going to necessarily um, have this big cost for the client to see different people on the team, that's great. But if you're your own thing in private practice... I, I totally understand that desire to keep your clients or that your clients are like, I'm not going to pay 250 bucks to go have a consultation with a psychiatrist when I don't even want medication in the first place. Or, you know, why should I go see a nutritionist if I can just X, Y, and Z? So I think when you're your own business, it's, I think it's harder mm-hmm. to create that network and, and, and uh, that treatment team than it is when you're already within an institution where it, it might be less expensive and a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my last quick point on that, and we'll transition to the topic of the day, is that if you get to work with someone like yourself, and obviously I've worked with you with you know clients, and it's been super useful. And so then awesome. The, the things that they'll say to me or they'll say to you or whoever they work with, people forget that they can be very different and that's not a knock at all um, because you have different perspective you're obviously going to do different things you're going to ask them different questions um, so for me it was was super useful you know and so I am always you know one thing I wish I could have done if I went back you know and started 15 years ago when I started is the very first thing I would have done is figure out okay who can I refer people to and having you know someone who is a psychologist would be you know one of the people I would have on the list in addition to, you know, physical therapists and other modalities. Mm-hmm. I think it just, it, one, it makes you look more professional. Two, it's protecting you legally. Yes. The client gets a lot better results, especially yes. when you're new, because you know even less than what you know now. Yes. So I think it's just a, just a, a win Everybody win. wins. Yeah. Cool. So we'll take a break, and then we'll move into the topic of the day on resilience. Okay. 
know, dear ladies and gentlemen, yeah, yeah, you know who this is. Uh, so I'm here to tell you about uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson's uh, new book, uh, Why You Should Eat Keto. I don't do it because, I mean, look at me. Come on, I'm fabulous and I'm fantastic. Anyway, you should text uh, Keto ebook all in one word to 44222 to receive your free copy. Do it. Do it now. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what, uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote-unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, There's an enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. It's Iron Radio, Dr. Mike Tenelson, Dr. Lonnie Lowry, Coach Phil Stevens, and today we're on with Dr. Lisa Lewis, and we are talking about the psychology side, and the topic of today is resilience, which is yes. appropriate for everything that's going on in the world now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so what? just starting out with the real basic stuff, what do you consider as a good definition of resilience? A good definition of resilience has two parts. The first part is the one I think most people are familiar with, which is resiliency is your capacity to bounce back when you face a stressor or some kind of adversity. So to 
return to your baseline to be able to recover from something that happens. The second part of the definition is a little bit newer and is based on a body of research that started with Marty Seligman, who's kind of the father of the positive psychology movement. So he adds, and resilience is also your capacity to grow and thrive and become stronger after dealing with or because of dealing with adversity and stress. I love this second part for many, many reasons. Um, And one of the reasons I think it should resonate with listeners or with people who like to strength train is because that's how getting stronger works physically, right? So you stress the muscle, you stress the muscle fibers, maybe they get a little bit damaged, and then as they recover, that's how they get stronger. And resiliency can work the same way psychologically. And so what resilience literature shows us is not only that you can get better by dealing with adversity and coping with stress, but that there are very concrete ways um, that different research studies have underlined for how to deal with adversity and cope in order to make yourself stronger or hardier or to have more grit. Those are just some of the words that are, um, that are kind of popular right now in the research. Very cool. Could you give us kind of an example of that? I think that makes sense, but I think sometimes it's harder for us with lifting weights. They're like, okay, yeah, it makes sense. But on the psychology side, I think sometimes it's a little harder to see how that that's sort of a lateral transfer of those concepts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I and I just recently uh, talked to a group of gym owners, small gym owners, about resiliency. The three pieces that we focused on as kind of like how to integrate this were optimism, mental agility, and positive emotions. Um, So I'm trying to think of which one to choose, which might be the most accessible to folks. Um, Let's let's maybe start with um, positive emotion. So the work on positive emotion comes from a psychologist named Barbara Fredrickson. She is a super badass. Um, She comes kind of from um, human factors kind of psychology, which is sometimes they work with um, people in the military around performance enhancement. And she um, has developed this theory called the broaden and build theory. So essentially what the theory asserts and her, her literature supports is that when people have a negative emotion, when they're afraid, when they're angry, when they're wicked anxious, their attention narrows, it, they, it becomes rigid. So if you think about fight or flight, you, you get jacked up um, or elevated and you, the, your menu of options becomes quite small. So, you know, I can fight, I can yell and scream, get in an argument, or I can run, or I can just freeze and do nothing um, and hold still. Oppositely, positive emotion opens our attention. It allows us to be more creative, more curious, to interpret data around us a number of different ways rather than just making one kind of appraisal and then running with that. And so when you approach situations or when you're in learning environments or training environments and you have a uh, positive set of emotions, which means you approach the scenario with curiosity, interest, excitement, let's throw happiness 
in there. There's all different kinds of positive emotions. You will, number one, have more open, objective view of how your body's feeling, how you're moving in space. You're more likely to enjoy your training more and therefore to exercise longer and or harder and or to persist in the activities over time. You're more likely to, let's say you feel some kind of sensation um, in your body as you're training, you're more likely to make a couple different hypotheses about what is that? Could that be my form? Is that bad pain? Is that good pain? Um, is that a tight spot in my body? Rather than being in a negative frame of mind, let's take somebody who's maybe really stressed and run down and maybe frustrated with their body or really, really hungry, and they might feel something and say, oh, I just tweaked my such and such, I gotta leave for the day, or um, they might say to themselves, oh, this always happens to me, you know, it must be something wrong with my program. Um, and they're less open to alternative hypotheses. So practicing positive emotion or positivity on a regular basis really helps people to be more productive and to persist in activities that are difficult and are challenging. So that's one example. Is is that helpful or does that still feel a little too academic? No, no, that, that that's very good because I think it gives people examples of of what to do for, you know, like, oh, my mid-back feels weird and not jump to the, oh, I must have injured it. Oh, this is a stupid idea. Why am I lifting weights? This is so dumb. Okay. <laughs> you know, to like, oh, well, maybe it's something else or maybe I just did that movement wrong. So I think that's a good good framework. And I think all all coaches out there have those clients who they maybe you can if you're listening you can think of like a case or a client that you have who's just every single interpretation they make is negative. Everything they say to you is negative. Those tends to be really draining clients. Um, yes. So that's kind of one end of the spectrum, but we all have tendencies towards negativity and positivity. But if we can move that needle, or, and we can move the needle in an intentional way, um, which is why I like mental preparation exercises before you go into train, you know, getting your mind ready, the same way you get your body ready to train, you get your mind ready um, to be more curious, more excited. Uh, more engaged with the experience in a positive way than to go into it with with a bunch of negative thoughts and negative feelings. Yeah. Uh, I'll spill real quick before he has to step off. Do you use any, I know you use different psychological sort of techniques on your lifters. Or are there things that you find super useful? And I know you've got a very dedicated group of people that you sort mm -hmm. of handpick to, which makes it a lot easier than kind of working at a gym where it's just whoever wanders in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the toughest part is just figuring out the individual. Like we were mm -hmm. talking about earlier, there's no template that fits. Like I have right. certain people that I need to work them up. I have certain people I need to settle them down. I have certain, you know, it just, it's so varied and so different. And part mm -hmm. of coaching is, is learning that, you know, yes. I can't expect what works for one to work for another. Yes. Like I have certain guys and gals that want me to smack the shit out of them, literally yep. like hit me hard. <laughs> yeah. And I have other people that are like, don't you touch me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I got to, you know, I'll put on calming music for them or something. I got to get them to quit pacing and, you know, so it just depends. And it's, you know, so, yeah, I mean, I can't give you one thing because everybody's so different. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. And I think you played around with that. I remember you telling the story of big Brian and just using different strategies with him and, 
sometimes kind of what you thought would work in practice. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, no, Brian is like, for for where he's at, um, he's the polar opposite of what you would expect. I mean, basically with Brian, like he's uh, – for people that don't know, he's like the fifth man in history to deadlift and squat 900 pounds in the same meet. And basically I need to come up and hug him and smooch him. <laughs> tell him how sweet he is right before he goes and squats 900 pounds. Yeah. You got this, Brian. You're such a nice guy. And here's a little pat for you. Mm-hmm. you know, and that's what he needs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's it's so different. And you can't judge the book by its cover. In, right. In case, you know. So this big, strong guy that's six five, four hundred 400 pounds, and he wants a hug. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, but yeah, I'm sure you see that working with nutrition, Lonnie, just different approaches with different people, and dealing with the the psychology around food, not just the food itself, right? Because they all get to tend to be kind of intertwined with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's true. I don't, I don't have. I don't see clients, patients slash clients. I mean, I'm an academic, yeah. right? I mean, I, I narrowed my focus, <laughs> which I think is sort of inevitable, you know, down to, I mean, coffee and, you know, some of the, uh, not just the physical, but the uh, cognitive aspects of that and that kind of thing. But like, as far as individuals, I just don't work with many people. Um, mm-hmm. I, once in a blue moon, somebody says, get me ready for a competition. And, and if it's a friend, I'll, I'll sort of do that in that context, you know, like talk mm-hmm. shop kind of thing. But um, it's the extreme nature, I think, of our sports, you know, when it comes to the diet. And, I mean, you, you don't just start um, on this ridiculous restrictive template, you know, and you have to let people experience little successes over like a 20-week or 25-week target diet and that kind of stuff, you know. And people start at different places, like just like what Phil was saying. So some people are like so gung ho and they're ready to rock, and and other people they really need to ease into it with you know maybe two lifestyle tweaks this week and just just do that for a, a couple of weeks, you know, before we even add anything else, layer something else on. But what always struck me is where you end up with people. Like Phil ends up with Brian. 900 pound performances, and I end up with people. They you know ultimately they culminate with. Um, four percent body fat you know or a, a female loses her period um which is almost inevitable when you be, when you get that lean to do a physique competition and so you know between the professional side and it's almost like uh, what dr lewis was saying the professional versus the athletic side there's this sort of balance this line you have to walk right because in most situations it would never be okay for me to help someone diet down to the point that they lose their period they mm-hmm. run the risk of female athlete triad sticking with mm-hmm. them and and reverse dieting and coming out of it and all that kind of stuff. But uh, at least that's what I see is the extreme nature of strength sports. And Mike, you've said this before, like it's not enough to say keto. Now it's carnivore, you know, it's because there's this sort of value system, which is, you know, you're only tough and you're only admirable. If you, if you're the most extreme and the most disciplined and that, that by definition doesn't have a lot of balance to it, does it? Mm-hmm. I will add one thing before I have to get off here. Yeah. Um, the, the biggest mistake I see, and I don't know, it's like you see this in high school coaches all the time, on the mental side of things, 
the realization that it is a very, very small percentage of population that, that thrives off of negativity. Mm-hmm. Like, you suck if you don't get this, blah, blah. That mm-hmm. usually doesn't work. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> Everybody. But, I mean, that's a very usual thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Especially in, like, high school situations. Oh, it's like yeah. most people need some kind of positive. Success, yeah. Whether that's, yes, whether that's really intense mm-hmm. or a bit more laid back, like in Brian's case. Uh, but it's still you get more what is it the whole you know catch more bees with with sugar than salt or whatever the hell it is you know usually people want you to tell them how awesome they are mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and that usually works pretty well so thank you for making that point i think that is a urban legend of youth sports and and the way that i see that affecting someone is working with athletes who are in their 20s or their 30s and i've worked with a number of female athletes who end up with red S or the female athlete triad and they have their whole youth they were just grinding and out and in this you know the 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 worse that you treat yourself and the harder you are in yourself and the more you bust your ass like the better it has to be like as negative and as unpleasant and as nasty mm-hmm. as possible and it takes a long time to, to unlearn that. I mean, I've had 25, 27, 30 year old athletes who they rationally, they are, they understand that beating the shit out of themselves all the time is not going to be helpful. It's not going to improve their performance. It's actually harming it. But just being raised in that environment that you're describing of being talked to negatively by coaches, being told like, you have to grind it out. It it should hurt. You know, you you should just keep going and going and going and going. Um, that mentality. It's just really hard to undo that when it when it gets baked in during those early years. Yeah, I have um, these little kind of red flags I have when I do interviews with potential clients, and one of them is similar to that of if especially they're very first time they were successful whether that's body comp performance or whatever mm-hmm. and not to rip on crossfit but a lot of times it was especially with crossfit especially four years ago that they worked really hard the environment was you got to try harder the goal was effort and it was the first time they really did anything in terms of exercise they did nutrition they're very very strict mm-hmm. and they were actually successful they lost right. a lot of weight and i've seen this in multiple people Mm-hmm. And then they get injured. They have all these issues. They can't figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. And it's so hard because their brain literally got wired to the time that I was successful is when I right. beat the crap mm-hmm. out of myself. Very reinforcing. <laughs> yeah. And that's it's so hard to get out of that too because it it just it has those associations and that's all they get kind of stuck in a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Lewis, if I can ask you, you mentioned age a couple of times. Is are you aware of any literature? Are you, Mike, you too. I mean, do you see clients where you think there's a generational or just like a age relationship with resil- resilience? Mm, that's a good question. I I um, I may always be talking about that. I look at that lens a lot because I teach developmental psychology at um, one of the local universities here, and so. I think it's always helpful to see where they're at, you know, in the lifespan and then also what generation they're inside of. Um, So I think resilience looks very different according to not just your age, but also 
what environment you grew up in um, and, and how people were supporting you. So I know people will brush with broad strokes about like millennials having less resiliency or mm-hmm. uh, Gen Xers having more. And um, I, I think that generalizations exist for a reason. Um, but I have met plenty of millennials who are quite resilient and what it had to do with was the type of sporting environment they were in or having one or two really fabulous coaches. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. But resilience became extremely popular, you know, about 10 years ago in college mental health because rates of suicidality just skyrocketed. And Mm. what was coming out of it was like these millennials that were in college at the time they're, this is they can't cope. This is the option that they're coming up with as a way to cope with their stressors. Um, I don't think that's true of all millennials, of course. Um, but we did see those statistics change, the amount of kids who were coming to college counseling, who were reporting suicidal ideation, who really you know, couldn't identify other ways to cope with the stressors that they were dealing with, which in large part were normal parts of college and, and just early young adulthood. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think it's a part of it, but that you can't make a generalization just based on the generation or the age bracket. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Two questions as we wrap up here. The the second definition you gave at the beginning about resilience, to me that sounds a lot like the definition of anti-fragile or mm-hmm. anti-fragility. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and um, when I think of anti-fragility, I just think that is like, um, you know, you're, I think of like mental health immunity. Sometimes I, I talk about that with clients that, so so now, for example, um, some of the people I'm doing consultation with or I'm just meeting in this environment are saying, I don't know why I'm binge eating now. I didn't, I, I haven't binge ate for a year. I don't know why I'm, I'm, um, you know, having these like obsessive compulsive thoughts now. I, I, I had treatment for that years ago and um, this environment that we're in, everybody's mental health immunity is just worn very thin. There's these chronic stressors. They may be because of work, because of finance, because of what's going on in your family, all of the things. But it's like when your physical immune system is worn thin, somebody coughs in your general direction, you get a cold. When your immunity is strong and it's hardy and maybe to use your word anti-fragile, you can go in a daycare center and not catch the cold that you know half the kids have. Or you know, you're more hardy, you're more resistant. Um, and so maybe I'll have you say more about what anti, anti-fragility means to you, but my, my, the way that I'm thinking about that is um, being more resistant to injury or just having a stronger mental health immune system so that your, your mind can respond to stressors and adversity um, in a way that helps you kind of maintain health and hardiness. Yeah, I- I just think it's to me it's fascinating though the exact same parallels and principles apply both physically and mentally. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think of anti fragility as just, you know, Nason Talib's comps uh, concept where like lifting. I apply to stress to the body and mm-hmm. if I actually look at the muscle, it actually is a little bit better now because of that stress. Right. Um, and I agree with what you're saying is that obviously all of those are gonna have 
limits at some point, and especially now as we get um, close to pushing those limits with external stresses and everything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's yeah, it's there's only so far you can you can go, right? It's like I always think of capacity and stressor. Yeah. If I have a big enough capacity, I can handle a lot of stressors. Or if the stressor is bigger than my capacity, I'm, something bad's probably going to happen. Yeah. I can do things to reduce, you know, what I'm exposed to. And I can try to stay home, um, but I'm probably best to try to increase my capacity also. So kind yes. of doing both of those. Yes. And what you're saying reminds me of w- one thing I love about strength training is I think it is a way to integrate psychological principles and and practice the psychology piece but physically I think a lot of us who are athletic or we like to strength train we live in our bodies we're physical people and so I will often this is kind of the focus of my Instagram account is to take some psychological idea and apply it to strength training and one of the reasons strength training is great is because you can always find that sweet spot of what is challenging, what is going to promote growth, what's going to be stressful, but not too much. Mm-hmm. Yes, you can overdo it. Yes, you can underdo it. But the way to enhance your performance and get the best results is to find that sweet spot where the challenge meets the skill, where you're outside your comfort zone, and you're going to see your body respond to the stressor in a positive way. Um, and that parallel really runs true psychologically as well. So I think people who get into the gym or who are engaged athletically, they're constantly in that process of wanting to push themselves, wanting to grow, but but then, and, and maybe this happens developmentally once you become an adult, not wanting to hurt yourself, you know, wanting to avoid the injury um, part of it. So just trying to find that Goldilocks amount of stress there. Cool. Awesome. And last question for the lifters and people you've kind of worked with, what would be kind of your one or two top tips that they can, you know, say apply when they're going to the gym or apply to just their their lifting lifestyle in general? Mm. Um, oh, so many things come to mind. But if I were to think of like the most common, like the mode of what, of what people um, either present with or what we end up talking about is the mental preparation piece of their lifestyle so the same way people who are training you know we want them to do some kind of dynamic stretching some kind of movement warm-up some kind of physical preparation for whatever they're going to be training that day there should also be a mental preparation you should be priming getting your mind ready so that your performance can be optimal and part of that optimal performance is that your enjoyment is optimal so the more that you are focused on what you're doing in the here and now, and the more that you have a positive attitude and you're ready and present for your workout, the harder you're gonna work, the longer you're gonna persist, and the more you're gonna like it, which means the more you're likely to wanna do it again soon. So mental preparation has looked very different from client to client. I have some clients who, um, I have them describe to me what they do before a workout. So some people, you know, they're coming after work or they're coming on their lunch break or they're eating or they're not eating. Some people are changing in a gym. Some people have a, a bag with them. So there's all these different moving parts. So I walk through that with clients. Um, what does it look like? What does it feel like? Um, I actually spent 10 minutes recently talking with a client about being in the car and what are they doing in the car. So 
are they listening to NPR or are they listening to heavy metal and which one prepares <laughs> them mm-hmm. better for what's about to happen in the gym? Metal, of course. Everybody of knows. course. <laughs> <laughs> um, when you are, you know, getting dressed and getting your earbuds in and you're, you're going over to your mat to, to do your warm up. Are you, is your ringer still on your phone? Are your emails still coming through? And are you getting notifications on that? Are you thinking about what you're going to make for dinner? Or are you thinking about what you get to do with your body for the next hour and a half? Um, A lot of clients find that once it's time to get on the mat and get ready, they either start reviewing the day, you know, running through what happened at meetings or on phone calls, or they go forward into what am I going to do tonight? How am I going to respond to this? And so when you're in the past or you're in the future, obviously you are not in the present and that is going to harm your performance. So there are a number of different strategies um, like scripting, like mindfulness exercises um, that can help you to get, get into the here and now. And what's fabulous about strength training, again, is that if you are dynamically stretching or foam rolling or you know, using something else to kind of work on your soft tissue, it's easy to get in the here and now because you can focus your attention on how do your muscles feel? How is your body responding? Um, what does this feel like for me today? And so you can get anchored or tethered to the present moment really, really, really easily mm-hmm. if you are an athletic person. Um, so that's probably the most common thing that I work on with athletes or people who are just um, high achievers and need to be able to like turn the page from work or kind of t- shut that off so that they can do their exercises or, you know, do whatever it is, whether it's running or training or whatever. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I mean, super quick. I always think of like, there's three lever points. So you have like biochemical, which could be if I'm going to lift early enough in the day, I can have some coffee or caffeine or, you know, pre meal or whatever it is. And then just your movement prep, right? So you're more your biomechanical type stuff. Mm-hmm. And then just the biopsych of which, you know, sometimes for athletes, they just oversimplify it to, are you paying attention to what you're doing or are you somewhere else? Mm-hmm. You can just, and I've even had athletes, I'm like, if you can't just pay attention to what you're doing and your brain is just completely going off somewhere else, then just leave. Like you're yeah. probably better off to go somewhere else and do something than, you know, to try to force your way through it. But mm-hmm. yeah, I love that. I think that's super helpful. Great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for all your time today. Yes. Dr. Lisa, we appreciate it. Uh, where can people find out more about you? I know you've got a, a product for fitness professionals. And- oh, yeah. Thank you. Yes. Um, thank you for mentioning that. Yeah. So people, my website, which is my home base, is drlewisconsulting.com. And on drlewisconsulting.com, you can see like podcasts I've been on, articles I've written for, for different magazines or blogs um, that are in, in different aspects of, of either sports psychology or performance psychology. Um, I do have a course. It's called Psych Skills for Fit Pros, and it's exactly what it sounds like. It is volume one. So in this first course I designed, the foci are on motivation, what it is, how to assess it in your clients, and how to leverage it. Um, for maximum results. Um, the psychology of change, behavior change, it's based on the um, trans theoretical model. Mm-hmm. And then motivational interviewing, which is just basically how to have a conversation and use verbal skills in a way that's going to amplify motivation. 
Um, so that course, um, and people can get CEUs if they're NASM certified or NSCA certified. Um, I think it's 1.3 contact hours. So that you can find more information on at my website. And then please follow me on Instagram. I work pretty hard to um, at least three or four days a week um, provide some content in either what I'm reading or, or working on with clients um, around performance psychology and mental skills into strength training um, or exercise. And that is at Dr. Lewis Consulting. Awesome. Yeah, you got tons of great stuff on your Instagram, and obviously I'm a huge fan of of the course and everything you did. I think it's one of those things, like I said, if I could have, when I started, at least go through that and have half an idea of what I was doing. I actually got so frustrated, I went back and started taking neurobiology classes to try to piecemeal stuff yes. together, and that's a long path. I don't recommend that. Yeah. <laughs> Just take your course. It's much better. <laughs> Thank you. Cool. Well, thank you so much for being on here. We really appreciate Thanks it. For having you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Hey, listeners. Have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store one for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good. Uh, knee sleeves. Wraps of some kind. Things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, The stuff you you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org. And um, let us know what you think on the forums. And certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, 
and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.